Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Missing Stone podcast. This week, I spoke with limnologist and ecologist Francesca Lauterman. Francesca and I met in graduate school, and it was exciting to hear about the decisions that led to our paths crossing and the ups and downs of her master's research. We then dive into her work as a biological consultant. Francesca discusses the diversity of the projects she works on and what her part looks like from the start of a project to when it's completed. We spend a lot of time nerding out on freshwater ecosystems. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Missing Stone podcast. Today, we have ecosystems and nature-based solutions scientist, and most importantly, my good friend, limnologist, Francesca Lauterman. How are you doing, Francesca? Oh, I am doing wonderful. A nice break from the workday. Thank you. So what does an average workday look like for you? Oh, an average workday can be... Oh, there. <laughs> That's a great question. I was just doing my uh, planning worksheet for the week. So a good amount of field work, I would say 50% field work on a good week, which can be, you know, riding in a boat, walking through wetlands, doing a lot of measurement, data collection, and then the other 50% statistical analyses, report writing, pestering clients. So it's a, it's a diverse setup. And where's that 20% for troubleshooting, fixing problems? <laughs> oh, that's my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you're kind of in the middle of all this, what was the moment that really got you to first become interested in ecology? So ecology for me, I would say it was when I was a teenager. I had naturally gotten in some trouble when I was in high school and my parents looking for somebody to babysit me slash set me in the right direction, sent me to my uncle's house for the summer. He is based out of Cocoa Beach and he works for the Marine Resources Council. So this was in 2004, right after the hurricanes had hit. They sent me out there to dig up the beach. There had been like major erosion and all of the sea turtle nests had been covered. There were erosion blankets that had been covered. And so I went out there alongside a bunch of state, I'd say convicts at the time. They were in jumpsuits. And I worked alongside them shoveling out sand to, you know, help restore the beach. And, oh, it was such hard work. But you were in a mix of scientists and just, you know, some people who had to be there mandatory and then other people who were volunteering. And after that, I was set like, oh, wow, this is very gratifying. And I, you know, wanted to pursue that. And that's what I ended up going to college for. So did you, you jump straight <laughs> in then? Did you, were you kind of, cause that's high school Were you just immediately, this is the path I graduate high school and I am off to be an ecologist. Yeah, um, we took a few different directions. At first, I wasn't super sold on environmental science and biology. I was still taking a couple of business classes thinking like, oh, you know, maybe I'll go into hospitality management because I had been working in a restaurant. But I ended up taking a environmental science course, environmental issues, and then a botany class and, you know, met my advisor, Dr. Thomas Whitmore, started following him around until he let me start doing research. So it worked out very well. 
So then was it straight? Because as you said, you met your advisor. Were you then straight into limnology or did you bounce around a bit, try different areas, marine, uh, other types of land conservation? Or was it just, I want to be a limnologist? I wanted to be a limnologist. Uh, Walked up to that research lab. He had several postdocs on microscopes. They were studying this glass algae that I now study, diatoms. And I was like, oh, I have to do this. There's no way I'm passing this up. So I started volunteering in there. I probably was spending 15 hours on a microscope a week just learning. And yeah, I am still a limnologist. But at that point, it was mostly paleo work. So I am a little more contemporary these days answering current problems. So if you started kind of as a high school student volunteering on a beach, what did you expect the field of ecology and conservation to be versus what is its reality? What dreams did you have that kind of are left unfulfilled? You know, if somebody would have told me there was going to be this much math, (laughs) I may have forgotten that dream. But I think that's really it. I thought there was going to be a lot more like hands-on field work, which in my position, luckily there is. But I really did think it was going to be like, oh, you're always wandering outside hiking or kayaking and just making observations. There's definitely a lot more math involved. There's a lot more networking. It's very interdisciplinary. So you'll end up working with geologists or chemists. And there's a lot more homework involved in day-to-day life than I thought there might be. I was like, oh, I'm going to be an expert. And that's that. But Every day you're learning something new. I always joke that becoming an expert just means you know what to Google and when to Google (laughs) it. Accurate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, how long did you spend on that beach then? Was that like a whole summer, a couple weekends? It was a couple of weekends. It was a couple of weekends, very long weekends. You know, the first day I was out there, I didn't know you needed gloves because I didn't really know I was going to be digging up the beach with a shovel. So I remember coming home and being like, you guys are terrible. This is abuse. (laughs) But then I learned, you know, sunblock coverings, gloves. And once you, the first time I saw a sea turtle, I was like, oh, this is it. (laughs) And did you get to see the end result of that work? Yeah, I did a pretty good job cleaning up the beach. Um, At that point, other engineering firms came in, started helping model. I think they had to do full beach renourishment. So the beach looks good now, as long as the hurricanes don't hit it. So it just took a while, but uh, got it figured (laughs) out. (laughs) Yeah, kind of endless work in Florida. Every time you think you fix something... A storm comes through. Sounds pretty accurate for wetlands and for marine. Yeah. A, a lot of my current projects uh, are dealing with mediating the effects of hurricanes. And so you try to work as fast as you can before the next storm season starts, but it's never fast enough. We need more hands on deck. So you pretty quickly then transitioned into finding a home in limnology. What was it about limnology that? motivated you or drew you to that you can't you can't live without water i mean learning that it is a finite resource it is what we have less than 0.01 percent fresh water on our planet i wanted to be a part of that like how can you not want to conserve that and then just even the species that are involved 
you know, they're not studied. The lowest amount of studies have been involved for conservation of freshwater species. So it's an important one. And that really gets driven home when you take a class in limnology. So I immediately took a course and that was, you know, it really pushed that home. Like you have to do this. It's super important. And everyone was studying saltwater. So I was like, you know what, let's be unique. Try something new. So most of the listeners listening right now probably don't exactly know what limnology is. And more specifically, you mentioned that you started in paleolimnology, which fewer probably really understand that. So if you were to just kind of give somebody the elevator pitch of what's limnology? So limnology is going to be the study of fresh water. So that can be lakes, wetlands, streams, reservoirs. And it is, again, interdisciplinary. So you're going to have the biological component, a chemical component, and a geological component, and then some others. But for paleolimnology, what you're doing is pulling sediment cores and reconstructing the history of these freshwater systems to better interpret just how things have changed, whether or not it's climate or water quality. You know, we're able to use certain you know, fossil indicators such as diatoms or pollen or macrofossils to give a full history of that system. It's really cool. So when you're looking at history, how much are you are are you able to know like exactly this much of the soil represents this many years? If we take this much of the soil, we're looking at exactly a hundred years. Or I feel like with Florida, does a lot of the soil get kind of pushed out over time with storms? Would that be an issue at all with paleolimnology? So to properly data core, you are going to be using ledu 10 dating, and that's going to get you back about 100 or so years. So in Florida, you know, we're pretty recent geological deposits. So that's about what we need to get, you know, human disturbance. But yeah, you can definitely have storm influences. Sand doesn't date very well. So you typically will, you know, gauge other indicators or like land use histories and get an idea like, oh, a storm came through and that's why we don't have a good history. So it can be rough at times depending on the system. But if you have a really good lake, you will get a full history. So then is the goal to use that history to try to get that lake back to where it was historically? Or is there kind of a broader understanding there's going to be a lot of uh, chemicals introduced from herbicides, pesticides? Uh, Are you trying to take that lake back to its original condition or just try to find a happy medium? I think a happy medium is probably the best way to say that. Pre-disturbance, you know, we're the climate has changed. Florida's population has changed. We are not going to get things quite back to pre-disturbance. So what we do is try to gauge, you know, what is, what would be good for the current conditions? You know, what is more of like a what would be the best state for the lake or system to be in? And that is where the historical input comes in. That and current inputs, like does the lake have, you know, government management and whatnot? So yeah, I would say we we do our best to give a good suggestion based on the data, those data. So you're going from kind of this background in paleolimnology, and I'm guessing that's kind of a lot of the work you were uh, conducting in this lab was around that area. Uh, and then you ended up choosing to go straight into a master's. What drove that decision? What was your goal when starting that? Uh, starting the master's. Well, I didn't feel finished. 
I'm sure we all say that. We're like, but my research, I can't just walk away from it. I have so many more questions. So that is why I ended up sticking around for a master's. I wanted to tack on more research. And I did that. (laughs) It worked. We added on several more lakes for the study. I heard a, I laughed really hard recently. I heard a great comment where somebody was complaining about job searching. And uh, the person they were talking to goes, well, that's why I never stopped going to school. That's why I started my master's. And that's why I'll probably do a PhD is I just don't want a job search. (laughs) And it hit a little (laughs) too close to home. (laughs) No, that's fair. I think if, you know, if somebody would pay for it, I would probably stay in school for the rest of my life. So if there are any takers out there, please. (laughs) So then from this, though, you, as you said, you kind of kept building that same research, but then ultimately you ended up in consulting. How did that transition happen? That actually happened through an undergrad research project. I was lucky enough that the consulting firm I ended up with, they had reached out to our lab to do a paleolimnological assessment of one of the lakes in Pinellas County. And so as an undergrad, I took charge of that, was able to finish that project and, you know, I think we finished it in the first two years of grad school. So it was a longer project. And, you know, once that was over, they offered me a job. They were like, this is great. Let's keep doing this. Let's work together. So without that undergrad research experience, I would not have landed a job so quickly. And so then you, when you took that job, what differences did you find between going into the private sector versus being a researcher at a university? Oh, there are so many differences. But there's also so many similarities. Um, I would say one of the biggest differences is having to be accountable to a client. You know, you have questions that your clients are going to lay out with you that you have to answer. And there are going to be different stakeholders involved. Whereas at, you know, the university level, it's, oh, I have a question and I'm just going to do what I want until I answer that question. So, you know, there's definitely a lot more accountability in consulting. That and, you know, you're balling on a budget at that point. So you have to, you can't like scope creep. You can't start finding other things you want to do. You have to really stay on your, uh, your plan. Do you ever feel any conflict since you are working for somebody when the data or what you're looking at doesn't line up with their goals of the project? Do you feel any conflict trying to create a situation that's better for them versus better for the environment? You know, I have been lucky that the clients here in Florida are just as passionate about the science and the environment as I am. So I haven't been put into any tricky situation. Normally, if we hit a roadblock, we figure it out together. We'll work together, put in a new plan, and it has come together very nicely. I'm sure, you know, one of these days it won't. But as far as Florida goes, everyone's on the same path. They want their fresh water to be in good shape. So if I remember when you took this position, though, you were able to dictate that you specifically did not want to work with oil and gas companies and oil and gas projects. How does that conversation go when you're telling your future employer, I care so much about the environment that I don't want to do this portion of what your company does? You know, I, that's, a, that's a great question, Sean. When I was hired, I was just, I was very explicit about that. I'm like, I am not comfortable working on very 
you know, well, first I wouldn't have been qualified to work on those projects. So it turns out it's not that big of a deal. Unless you're going into petroleum engineering, you're probably not going to get called upon to work on those. But, you know, do your homework ahead of time. If you're going to work with certain companies, you know, you can ask them straight up like, hey, am I going to have to work on projects that pertain to this or will be, you know, influencing this? And, you know, they're, they're very receptive to that. In my case, I was like, oh, I don't really love petroleum. And they're like, that's fine. You're a limnologist. You're not going to touch it. We save that for the petroleum engineers. So, but I would say just be like, don't be afraid to tell them what you want. If there's something that makes you uncomfortable, you know, we have, it's, you have one, you have one job, do what you need. Don't feel pressured into anything. So how many limnologists are out there? How many people are a part of this field globally? Oh, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, the conferences I've gone to, there's a heavy sprinkling of us, less paleo than contemporary. But on my team, I think I'm there are two limnologists. But okay, so it's a pretty large, or not a large field, but for... Uh, environmental science as a whole, there's a pretty good sprinkling of limnologists out there. Yeah, we're definitely, we're out there. We're working. I don't think we're as trendy as, say, a marine scientist would be, but <laughs> we do we do hard work. <laughs> You're not one of those out there to save the sea turtles. Hey, my work has downstream effects, okay? I'm still saving <laughs> the sea turtles in my own way. So before we transition really into digging up what you do uh, on a day-to-day research-wise, I do want to talk about, you kind of had something happen to you that all field researchers fear, which is a field accident. And in your case, this was a boating accident. So what happened first and kind of what are the repercussions of being involved in a field accident like that? So. First things first, your safety is the most important thing. And when you are working outdoors, whether or not you are working from a truck, you are on foot, you are in a boat or kayak, you need to create a safety plan. And at most companies, that is a given. You know, anywhere you work, they're going to make sure you have your safety. But this goes for even if you're just a student researcher, because, you know, sometimes you'll take a weekend trip just to collect those data. But always safety is first and foremost. It is paramount. Um, as for me, I was doing some pretty routine field data collection from a boat. We were checking groundwater wells and unfortunately the boat operator had lost control of the boat and we were both ejected. That's not great. The boat had continued going and unfortunately I had been struck. So it was a very scary situation. I am okay. We were both okay, but it was terrifying. I don't want anybody to be in that position. So, you know, wear your life jackets, use your kill switch on your boat, you know, plan for inclement weather and like pay attention to your surroundings. It can happen in an instant. I was legitimately taking field notes. And when I opened my eyes again, I was underwater. It was a very fast, fast accident. So then when you open your eyes underwater, how'd you react initially? Well, I was upside down underwater. I didn't really know at first. <laughs> I was like, hey, I was like, huh, how did I get here? But now I write, I was lucky, you know, my life jacket helped write me. 
and, you know, pop my head out of the water. And the first thing I did was, you know, look for my coworker. I heard him verbally. And then I got hit by a boat. <laughs> that wasn't awesome. So my second thought was, ah. So first what thought, injuries? Where's my coworker? Second thought, ah. <laughs> um, the propeller did strike me. I was hit in the back. So not great. But again, lucky. Life jacket helped a lot. I was able to then start, you know, after I was struck, I was able to start swimming to shore. We were lucky that a farmer had been eating lunch on his dock, saw the entire accident, and jumped right onto his jet ski and came and got me and my coworker. But yeah, without his reaction time, I think it would have been a lot harder to get back to shore. So how long did this accident keep you out of field work? How long was your rehab? My rehab, about six months. And I'm back in the field now. I'm I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> so for <laughs> a lot therapy, of the people... the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of the people listening, uh, not hopefully not a lot, but a handful might have gone through something similar to this, a field accident. What was it like getting back into the field for the first time? Did you trust the people you were working with or did it take time to really get back into field work and into the swing of things? You know, I was not excited about getting back on a boat, obviously. I was very nervous. But, you know, the first time I went back on a boat, one of my coworkers, he was absolutely incredible. Before we even went out, we met. I got to sit on the boat and just kind of, you know, get myself back into like, okay, let's do this. And so it was a slow approach, first getting into the boat, then operating the boat. <laughs> I took it around a very small pond. I was the one driving just to get myself eased back into it because I wasn't, I, I didn't want the accident to you know, stop my career. I was very lucky to have made it out. Uns fairly unscathed and I wanted to continue my career and being on a boat's one of my favorite things. But yeah, it 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 took a while. There are still some times now that I'm like, ugh, don't love this. Like if the water gets a little choppy, I, I get I'm not gonna lie, I get a little afraid. But you know, having those safety procedures in place, you know, having open communication with who you're working with makes it so much easier and so much safer, of course. So speaking of your career with the work we do, we need we often need kind of passion behind what we do, motivation behind what we do. How has that passion or motivation or purpose changed across your career? Is it different now than when you were on that beach uh, conducting restoration work in the sand? Absolutely. I, I think the confidence is what really changes. Once you realize that the people you're working with and working for are all heading towards a very common goal, you build that confidence. Like, okay, you know, even if I don't know the answer, there's going to be somebody who can help me get there. I have the tools, you know, I have the capabilities. And that's very motivating. It's very motivating to work with others. So what environmental purpose or conservation purpose do you tend to carry with you uh, as you do this work? What's kind of your motivation around, since what we're doing is all about protecting the environment, Where's your motivation lie in that aspect? I want to make sure, especially in my state, I we have such an incredible state. We have 8,000 lakes. We have 30,000 miles of streams. 
And I want other people and their kids and their grandkids and their grandkids to be able to enjoy these resources. We have such incredible animals, incredible waters. So when I'm working, I want to do a good job because I want to make sure it is there for other people to enjoy. And I really like those animals. I don't want those going anywhere. Please keep those around. Natives or invasives included in that? Ah, man, that's a hard question. (laughs) Some of the invasives are awfully cute, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) I actually want to dive into that kind of towards the end of our kind of work and research discussion is how invasives affect that. But to really start that discussion, I really want to start at the beginning uh, where what was the focus of your master's research? My master's research was studying diatom communities in 72 Florida lakes. And the purpose of this was I was trying to get an idea of how these communities looked across these different lakes. So I could hopefully build a index of biotic integrity for management. And lake management, again, 8,000 lakes, very important in Florida. So that is what I've continued to work on even past thesis. We are trying to develop this as a tool for lake managers to be able to see if, you know, through time we are meeting certain thresholds to show, hey, this lake is impaired. We don't have very many biological indices that we use here. You know, we have the lake vegetative index. For the most part, it's done by modeling. And I would like to change that. I think biological indicators, they're so useful. We should be using them. So then how do you transition from that to working for a consulting company? I mean, you mentioned that you worked on a project for the consulting firm, but as you began this work, going from creating a model and trying to do something so big picture to starting to work on these smaller projects, what was that transition like? So I haven't had to do much of a transition because I haven't let go of my university research. I am still in there a couple days a week as I can, still working hard on those questions. And because of that, I feel like I'm able to balance. You know, I have some, sometimes my work is very related and then sometimes it's absolutely unrelated, but I haven't let go of either. So I'm spoiling myself while I can. You know, now that thesis is over, a lot more time to play. Definitely. And that thesis, well, I should have touched on this in the first part, but if I recall, it took you four years to fully graduate and uh, defend your thesis. (laughs) So what kind of light did that shine on academia and some of the issues surrounding academia? (sighs) Truthfully, the reason it took me so long was because I had to work a full-time job and that was due to limited funding from my program. I think if you Well, first, I don't think anyone should rush, you know, two years, maybe too small for certain ecological projects. But at the same time, having full funding would have changed the game. I probably still would have taken three years because I took on a massive project, but it would have been nice to not have to focus on an outside career. But at the same time, it was great. I have a career. So I won out in this case. (laughs) Is there any advice you'd give then for somebody kind of coming up and trying to figure out, is the master's the right direction? Is there a career trajectory they could go down? Is there any advice you'd give somebody uh, since you've kind of done it all? My advice is, you know, 
interview who you're going to be working with, whether or not it is in a laboratory at a university or it is a, it's a laboratory at a consulting firm or a state government, you know, really get an idea of what type of work you will be doing, what kind of pay or funding you will be receiving, because that's a big one. We all like to think we can work for free, but it doesn't work that well, you know, especially when you're trying to pay for classes. But I would say definitely know what you're getting yourself into. Know your research questions, you know, really figure those out up front so that you're not two years down and go, oh, no, this didn't work. Back to the drawing board. So, yeah, I think just having open communication with your advisor, your committee, or, you know, whoever's signing your paychecks is very important. I've seen a lot of people take on extra time, extra debt, because they didn't have a very solid plan in place. That's definitely huge because uh, everybody's going to promise you a pretty good bill of goods when uh, when you're first starting out and having a true understanding. Uh, one of the things I always tell people is interview, if possible. I mean, we were first year of the program, but interview uh, other people who have the same advisor or have the same position, or at least ask questions to get a general idea uh, of the type of people who work well under that person. Cause you know, if you need a good work-life balance and everyone's saying that everyone you're talking to seems like a workaholic, then that might be a good indication and vice versa. If you want to spend 60 hours in the lab and nobody else is, you know, that might be a little bit of a difficult dream to find. So I always say interview the people that you're going to be working around to. Oh, that is great advice. And that does go for your workplace as well. You will have certain people who are perfectly capable and happy to work a 60 hour week. And yeah, so it's, you know, it goes that way for private institutions as well. I'm always shocked at how much people work. So then diving back into the private institution that you're working with, I know you recently just kind of changed companies that you're working for. So your work shifted a little bit. But what is the full range of projects that you can be working on as a consultant? Now, that is why I love consulting. (laughs) We get to do everything. If you have an interest in it, there is probably somebody who is paying somebody to do it and you can get involved. So a lot of the projects I deal with are lake restoration, lake management and or sediment water quality. So really heavy on the water quality. And at this company, I've started learning more about stream restoration and fluvial geomorphology. So, you know, I was like, all right, I know a lot about lakes. It's time to start, you know, broadening my freshwater knowledge. And now I'm going to be working on stream restoration, which is great because that also, you know, takes into account wetlands and just downstream effects for some of our coastal areas. So it really is. If if you can dream it, somebody wants it done, guaranteed. So I worked on some strange projects. I love consulting. <laughs> it is great. So I know this might be hard to pinpoint one specific project, but what has been either the one project or kind of group of projects that's been most exciting to you or the ones that you enjoy the most? I have absolutely loved sediment characterization and nutrient inactivation projects. 
So a lot of times our lakes, after they've dealt with, you know, the stormwater issues and just anything coming into the lake, you know, they, they still might find that they're having nutrient problems. And so we'll start examining what's going on in those sediments. And Florida sediments can be, you might have like two meters of muck at the bottom of a lake. So I have had just the best time researching the sediment flux out of those, you know, out of what's going on in the bottom of the lake. So it is, you know, biogeochemistry, which again, no one told me I would have to do as an adult, but here we are. But those have been awesome. There are products on the market now that are safe for animals. They're safe for the fish. They're safe for the plants. And we're able to, you know, help reduce those like inside contaminants from rising up out of those sediments. And I've just had the best time working on those projects. It's really cool. And it's very dirty. So that's fun too. What I'd love to do for listeners is kind of just give them an idea then what one project or group of projects looks like kind of start to finish. So if we use that project as an example, who's the clients approaching you? for that or are you going out after a storm and approaching the clients now because you know that this is work that you can do for them so a lot of the time the clients are going to be um you know state municipalities so it could be city county or districts and they already know they already know that there is an issue on these systems you know these systems have total maximum daily loads tmdls they're already showing nutrient problems you know we're getting severe algal blooms just you can tell there's a problem on these lakes very stinky very green and so from there they're trying to figure out what the sources of these contaminants are you know is it phosphorus is it nitrogen like what is going on so they will do these very large plans so we do literature searches we get with the municipalities to figure out you know, what's like if there's stormwater sources or groundwater sources that could be coming in. And so, you know, after that, there would be a good amount of field work. We go out and start actually taking water quality measurements. We take sediment measurements. Um, a lot of that ends up going into mapping software like GIS, land use. And, you know, once we have those results back, we have statistical analyses. You know, we do a lot of extra laboratory analysis depending on what we see and then we come up with a management plan that we take to the city or county or whatnot so these are they're multi-phased projects they're big they are very big and again multidisciplinary you are working with engineers you're working with geologists and you're working with the clients pretty closely so who tends to be first on the scene are you as an ecologist kind of the first on the scene doing the testing before that information goes to uh, engineers and uh, land surveyors and other groups that are going to be coming out and helping with whether it's a delineation or restoration? A lot of the time we share the brunt with our, I say brunt like it's a bad thing. We get to do the literature search first. So I would share that work with whoever I'm working with, whether it's other scientists or engineers. So we work together on that. And then it's usually me. I get to go out. Yay. So the field work is, of course, everyone's favorite part. Everybody wants to go out because why wouldn't you? So then once you step out in the field, so the project starts, you're working with the client, you do the literature search. Now you're in the field Uh, with that specific project. You said you're kind of 
taking core samples, you're looking at a lot of different factors with the lake. Uh, how long does that process usually take? And are you very focused on that set of field work or are you jumping between field sites and projects as you go? On average, I have five to 10 projects that I'm working on at a time. And most of those are because I really want to be a part of them, you know, <laughs> but yeah, so we are, we're working on a multitude of projects at a time for different you know, different clients, different project managers. And sometimes you have a very small part. And sometimes if they're just curious about what's happening in the sediments, I will come out for one field visit. I will take a sediment core. And that is my portion of a very large project. Other times I'm working on every step of the way from the literature search down to the statistics and the recommendations. So it depends on the client, depends on the project, and it depends on my expertise. Sometimes I'm not needed, but they're just like, hey, you know water, you know sediment. Just review this for us. Make sure we've got it down. So it's very, it's dependent on the project. So how has your approach changed in working with clients over the last few years? What did you learn about working with, I guess I'll call them the general public for now, uh, but especially with non-scientists uh, in trying to complete these projects? How has your approach changed uh, over the last few years? Honestly, I try not to sound as technical coming into certain meetings. Like I know if there's going to be a large like public presence, I don't use words and phrases that are going to confuse people, including myself. So that has changed when I was still young and like, oh, I need people to know I know what I'm talking about. I would use the craziest acronyms. And now I'm like, yeah, it's nitrogen, just nitrogen. It's fine. <laughs> So I think that has changed a lot, like the comfort level, the confidence, knowing that not everyone's going to be on the same page as you and that you have so much to learn from them. But for the most part, everyone has you know, a really good attitude. And if questions arise, you answer them. I ask so many questions. I have no idea what the engineers are saying half the time. They use so many acronyms. I spend a lot of time on Google, not going to lie. <laughs> So then what kind of complications arise on a lot of these projects, whether it's that type of project or a different one? What's the because when it comes to field work and especially when it comes to trying to utilize one set of methods for something, we can always run into different complications. So what are some of the complications and kind of troubleshooting that you have to do on a pretty regular basis? I think they're pretty standard to science as a whole. You know, the methodology just doesn't work. You don't get the results you're looking for or hoping for. So you change the methodology. There have been times it's very much back to the drawing board. You know, you have to approach a client or your manager and go like, hey, this didn't work. Uh, this is my second idea. And then we kind of just, we make do, we make it work. You know, whether or not we have to reallocate funding or ask for more, or we just, you know, we make it work. We always try to make it work. I haven't really run into any situations where there wasn't an answer. I've been very lucky in that regard, but sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes you really do expect something to perform the way it has the past 10 times. And it's just not going to be the case because there's a different variable. So now that you've been doing this for well, including your research going on 10 years now. Uh, <laughs> I know that's kind of disgusting to think about. but uh, <laughs> Oh, ancient. So, <laughs> but uh, do you find yourself kind of 
seeing something that's a little abnormal and being able to diagnose it quickly? Or do you still come across issues where it takes you hours to figure out what am I even looking at here? Why am I seeing this when it's supposed to be this? You know, every now and then I have those moments where I am like, what in the world am I looking at? Why is this so different? I feel like I should know this, especially when it's a neighboring water body of one I just studied. I'm like, oh, come on. This shouldn't be. They're attached. Why is this so much harder? So it does come up. There are times where I'm definitely challenged. It does feel good, though, when, you know, it works. The research works. The science works. The study works. But every now and then it's tricky. But that's going to happen. You know, I think that's pretty normal for all of us to face in our research. Like, oh, oh, no, that is so different. Is there a recent one that stands out to you? I think a recent one would have been just honestly a design challenge. You know, we ended up going out to a lake and the sediment was completely unconsolidated. It was like soup. So how do you get soup into a canister? You know, so it's like trying to figure out the best approach. You are calling, you know, environmental suppliers and going, hey, have you ever had to pump out, you know, like soup. <laughs> so sometimes it's like that. You get where you're going and you had planned one way and then, you know, it's back to the drawing board, but back to the drawing board while you're standing on a lake. You know, you're <laughs> like, oh no. So that was a time and it ended up working out. The uh, manufacturer brought us equipment to site. They drove out and helped us. So it worked out really well. But in that moment, I was like, oh, we should just go home. This is over. <laughs> So then what did you end up finding in that you you were extracting this soup? Was it to look at the the nutrients in the soils or what were you specifically looking for in that? We were looking at nutrients in the soils, kind of getting an idea of how the the composition was going to come out. Yeah, sediment nutrient testing is very cool. You're, once things hit oxygen, they do all sorts of fun things. So then I guess as we kind of conclude talking about a lot of the work you're doing, what types of Florida-specific issues, earlier we mentioned invasive species, do you run into as an ecologist in such a, I'm just going to call it a weird state? (laughs) Number one for me would be nutrient pollution. We are seeing a huge imbalance of nutrients on our freshwater systems. You know, I'm sure if you read the newspaper, you, you see algal blooms, you see red tide. And all of this is going to be due to nutrient pollution. So that is something that I think everybody who lives here and visits here has a say in, you know, do better with fertilizer, do better with not throwing things at your car windows, stuff like that. Just trying to keep the water clean, getting a good idea, getting a good knowledge of what you should and shouldn't be applying to your lawns is a big one. That's a big one. (laughs) So then what are, as we talk about that, then what are you finding that people are using on their lawns? Is there any one uh, herbicide that they're using that is then creating massive issues or is it just a big combination of things? It's going to be a big combination of stuff. So nutrient pollution, it's phosphorus and nitrogen. And these are, these occur naturally in our grounds. We, they're part of us. We need nitrogen and phosphorus. But when they accumulate to those levels, whether or not it's from stormwater runoff or lawn runoff, you know, it's just going to compound in those lakes. 
And then, of course, end up in the streams and into our oceans. So if we want happy animals, happy, clean water, we've got to just, you know, rein it in. And I think education is the first place to start. Almost every municipality has literature online. They'll help you out. So then on the reverse of that, have you ever worked a project where somebody thought there'd been a massive change in the nutrients and you found out that historically it was just a nutrient rich lake that had lots of nitrogen and phosphorus, or is it usually the opposite? Is it usually something you need to clean up? So that's very fun. Um, That is what my undergrad research was taking with. So normally a paleolimnological study is trying to discern at what point the lake changed. So did it become more phosphorus rich or more nitrogen rich? And there have been projects where people have been convinced. You will have people go, I have lived on this lake. It is clear. It has always been clear. You could see the bottom. And the historical data says that is not true. So occasionally you have to, you know, your research is saying, no, the lake's fine. It's a happy lake. Leave it alone. I know you want a spring, but it's not a spring. It is a green lake because it's sitting on phosphorus deposits. It's very geologically driven here in Florida. So coming in as an environmental scientist, how much have you had to learn about geology and uh, how much of a struggle has that been? (laughs) Oh, geology is the first and foremost, if you don't know your Florida geology. We are so diverse here. It is, yeah, those, those underlying deposits change everything whether or not you're working on springs, lakes. Yeah, that is the most important. So that is the first class you should take. If you want to work in Florida, you need to take Florida Ecosystems and a good geology class because it is going to change everything you think about. And I'm realizing... I say, during our literature searches, that's one of the first thing we do is figure out, you know, what it's sitting on. Yeah, and I'm realizing a lot of the listeners, because uh, you mentioned, is it 8,000 lakes in 8, Florida? 8,000 lakes. 8, lakes. But uh, a lot of the listeners don't really know. Uh, I kind of took it for granted having taken one of Tom's Florida Ecosystems classes. <laughs> uh, the history of the springs there and how unique the geology of Florida really is. So uh, would you want to just explain briefly kind of some of that historical geology and how that impacts uh, the types of water and how much we have in Florida? Yeah, so a lot of the lakes that are commonly impaired that I work on are in central Florida, and they're sitting on the Bone Valley Formation, which is you know a marine deposit that's made of phosphorus, which is why we mine phosphorus in those areas of Florida. But because it's naturally rich in phosphorus, the lakes are going to be as well. So... A lot of our lakes are naturally productive. They are high in nutrients. They are going to have algal blooms naturally. It's just figuring out, you know, when it's too much and it becomes an issue. So it's very different than when you go, say, northern Florida, where you're going to have more clastic clayey soils, deeper lakes. They're just so cool. It's so variable here, depending on where you are. I recommend going on a full survey. (laughs) How does the limestone uh, kind of understory or because that's the primary rock that Florida is built on is that limestone that allows for the aquifers and the springs. How does that impact your research on a day to day basis? Well, it gives me more lakes, you know, they're sinkhole formations. But, yeah, it is going to, you know, 
basically decide whether or not there are going to be certain nutrients you're going to find in that lake. But yeah, most of our lakes are sinkhole formations oh, and they're beautiful. Where do you want to see this research or work going as we kind of go into the future and you're saying you're really enjoying the variety of work that you're doing, but what changes would you want to see come to this field that would maybe allow it to grow going forward? I think, you know, Florida has an amazing water management program. We do a very good job. The municipalities do a very good job. Again, granted, we also have large amounts of ecotourism, so we have to do a good job. It's very important to our state. I would love to see other states start putting in some of these practices, getting an idea of more like what the watersheds are doing, have more routine monitoring and management. There are states out there that don't record any of those data. Now, I'm not going to call any of them out, but, you know, I would like to see this move across the country. I think we absolutely need our freshwater supply to be monitored. And that kind of brings us to a good point to start these last few questions. I like to wrap up with kind of some future of conservation direction questions. So the first one is, uh, what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? I'm a freshwater resource. Like, I'm a researcher. You're like, I mean, obviously, it's got to be freshwater, right? <laughs> so, I mean, conservation of freshwater resources, not just monitoring, but we do need to, you know, stake claim of not withdrawing water too dramatically. We need to make a better effort to leave some of our resources untouched. And if that means buying the land and con conserving it, so be it. Someone needs to do that. <laughs> You've already touched on a little bit what you'd like to see grow about especially water conservation. So I guess to make this a little fun, if you were given unlimited funding to answer one question or pursue one project, <laughs> or did I just oh, no. open Pandora's box with that one? <laughs> That's dangerous. Yeah. Oh, man. Everybody would have a YSI that they would be bringing out every day to a water body on my behalf. It would be wonderful. It would be an army of researchers. Citizen science is pretty cool, you got to admit. Um I don't think I have one, one goal. I definitely think I would have people immediately just sharpen up their actions. No one would have a front lawn <laughs> <laughs> that they had to fertilize. You know, it would just be, I think it would be, you know, living more consciously of their environments. You'd love Colorado Parks and Wildlife actually has a river watch program where they'll, uh, train citizen scientists to collect samples from rivers all throughout Colorado. And then they'll give you the resources to collect those. And all you have to do is pay the mailing fee uh, to oh. ship it to the headquarters and they process all the samples and keep all the data over time. And I was recently in a meeting with uh, there's some schools that actually ha have their students train with the teacher uh, each year to take these samples. So they're sending samples from the same sources every year. Uh, and the students are getting experience doing that as well. So I don't know, maybe suggest that for the state of Florida. Yes, I love that. 
Oh, and students are the best. All those little ecologists running around. That's amazing. Yeah, we need to, I think all of our states, the whole country, sharpen up, get more science going. So then what concerns you about the future of conservation? I think one of my biggest fears is we won't have anything to conserve. We don't have a lot of water left. And that is, that's very concerning. You know, if we draw down our reservoirs, what am I going to do for a living? Sean, I'll have to change my major. (laughs) So then I guess going back, how does the lowering of water tables really impact the work you're able to do throughout Florida? Because I know that is a huge issue where certain years they'll pull down. uh, Is it Lake Kissimmee? That's the main water source for most of South Florida, or am I mixing that one up? I'm not sure for South Florida, but up here, you know, we do have a couple of rivers that we use as reservoirs as well as our groundwater. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure on that one. So then when they do lower those water tables, does that impact the work you're able to do uh, for your clients? Or is it just something that you kind of have gotten used to taking into account? So we do take it into account depending on the project. So if it's a stream project, you know, you're going to have to take into account if there is a like minimum flows agreement, how much water withdrawal is going to come out. So that is a lot. Like there are people who just study like the fish populations. And now those, those are challenging questions. As for my research, it's not too directed by that. But as a citizen, it's concerning. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Kind of, I want to respect your time here. So to wrap up, what advice would you have to future conservationists, to especially those 12 or 13-year-old kids that are dreaming of one day going into this field? Start now. There are so many ways to get involved, whether or not it's a volunteer organization or going over to your local research lab. I have seen teenagers get internships at a lot of places and they do incredible work. You know, so I would say like don't think you have to wait till college, don't think you have to wait until you're employed in a certain field before you can make those changes or commitments. If you're interested in it, you know, go after school. You know, talk to the biology teacher. They might have some resources, but yeah, start now. Just jump in it and do not be afraid to network. Networking truthfully will get you everywhere. So, go make some new friends. That's definitely that networking side. Uh, Just recently when I was job searching, I would cold email 10 people and get at least five responses. So (laughs) I know that my, a lot of professionals might be like, don't give that advice. But uh, really, this is such a friendly field. And uh, a lot of times if you don't get an answer, it's because somebody was just too busy. It's not that they don't want to talk to you. So don't be afraid also to go back and talk to that person a second time. Oh, absolutely. I have reached out to people 10 years ago and I don't meet them until recently at a conference. And they're like, you had such a wonderful email. I'm so sorry. I was like on a field ship and couldn't respond to you. It's people do remember they're very kind, very generous with their time as they can be. Yeah, I don't see why not. I think five responses out of 10 is pretty good. (laughs) Well, Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Also, I just love the fact that even though we are close friends, I never actually hear about your work. 
that's not obviously something we talk about all the time. So it's been really exciting to get to know what you do on a regular basis. And I hope everyone enjoyed listening to it. But thank you so much, Francesca. Thank you.